A few years ago, our family were on holidays down at Tomokan on the south coast, and we went for a little morning trip down to the Maruya Markets. Who's been down there? Nice little spot, isn't it? There was this guy down there selling fruit and vegetables, and for some reason when I'm on holidays, I just always seem to end up in these long discussions with strangers. I started talking to this guy who owned the fruit and vegetable stand, and they were, let me tell you, they were some nice-looking fruit and veggies there, better than the ones we try and grow at our house. So I asked him, if you were going to give someone like me one piece of advice about growing vegetables, what would it be? He answered with a question. He said, where are you from? I thought, oh, he doesn't want to tell me his secrets. He's trying to change the subject. I said, I'm from Dubbo. He said, oh, if I was from Dubbo, I would use a wicking bed. I'd never heard of a wicking bed. It turns out a wicking bed is like one of those self-watering pots where you've got the pot and you water the plant from the bottom, but it's out in the garden, so there's this reservoir of water under the ground, and the plants can get water whenever you want. He said if he was trying to grow vegetables in a dry climate like Dubbo, there was no way he would grow vegetables unless he uses a wicking bed. Now, look, I don't know a lot about growing veggies. There's some more experts here than me. Um, I thought that was a pretty good idea, though, but I didn't do anything about it. I just went back to gardening the way I'd always done it, which is, you know, do some intensive weeding and planting for a couple of weeks, ignore the garden for a couple of months, come back, and then you're sad because everything's died. This year, though, I decided maybe I should give that wicking bed a go. So I did. We built a wicking bed at the start of the year, and it worked. The plants are actually growing. And when I forget about them, it's nothing to do with Dubbo's climate being dry. It's just to do with me forgetting to water. But when I forget about them, they can actually get the water from under the ground, and they're growing, and they're green. So, look, I should have done it years ago. That's the moral of the story. And sometimes we're like that, aren't we? We We know something's a good idea but we just keep putting it off. I'll tell you something else that I kept putting off for too long that was a bit more serious. I had sore knees for 10 years. I'd stopped playing squash, I'd stopped playing touch footy, and I'd stopped running because my knees were sore. And after 10 years, I finally went to a physio. In one visit, he told me what was wrong, and my knees have been fixed ever since. 10 years. I should have done it years ago. Now, sadly, that can be the same when it comes to our relationship with God. There is nothing more important than being in a good relationship with the God who made us. And yet a lot of people just put off thinking about it. Or they know they've thought about it and they know God is there, but they put off making a decision. Now, if you're here this morning and you've been putting off becoming a Christian, if you've been perhaps thinking that following Jesus is a good idea but you've never got around to doing it, I hope that after we've looked at today's passage in 1 Samuel 7 that you won't put it off any longer. Now, today's the last day in our series on the book of 1 Samuel for the moment. We're going to come back to it later in the year in third term, but next week we're going to be doing a a a, um, series on Philippians. So this is the end of this little instalment of 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel 7, which we're looking at today, God has returned his ark to his people, but his people have not yet returned to him. And it doesn't just take them one or two years to return to him. It doesn't take them 10 years to return to him. It takes them 20 years before they return to him. We saw that right at the start of the reading in verse 2. 
It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim. And all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. Now, for those of you who haven't been here for the 1 Samuel series, or maybe today's your first time at Dubbo Presbyterian Church, you might have a few questions about this passage. What's going on? 20 years since what? What's all this business about the ark? Let me do a really quick recap. From the very beginning, in Genesis, God chose a man called Abraham and promised that he would make a special nation out of that man. In Exodus, God rescued the descendants of Abraham and he gave them the Ten Commandments and he he put them in an ark and that was what he used to lead his people. In Joshua, he led those people into the promised land, a land that he promised to Abraham. And that is where they still are in the book of 1 Samuel. In the book of Judges, which comes next in the Old Testament, there's this cycle where the nation of Israel have things good and they turn away from God and reject him. Then a few years go by, then they remember him, then they say sorry and return back to him and he rescues them. That's the cycle that was the book of Judges. Judges ended quite badly and then we hit 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, the nation of Israel are under the judgment of God for their rejecting of him. Now right back in chapter 1, if you were here, we saw that God picked one woman, Hannah, and God caused her to have a baby even though she was barren. And his name was Samuel. And God promised with the birth of Samuel that there would be a reversal, that God would fix things up with the nation of Israel. But as we read on in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4, things actually get worse. The nation of Israel rejecting God at every level, even in their leadership. They get completely slaughtered, we saw a couple of weeks ago, because they disobey God. 30,000 of the Israelites die The Ark of the Covenant, which was the box with the Ten Commandments, is captured by the Philistines. And remember, that was significant because that was the sign of God's presence with his people. And so by the time we get to 1 Samuel chapter 7, that Ark that was gone has now been returned to Israel. And it ends up at a place called Kiriath-Jearim. That's where we're at today. The ark has returned to Israel, but they have not returned to God. They are still not interested in God. And so the ark sits there doing nothing for 20 years. The Israelites continue to worship their false gods for 20 years. They continue to ignore God for 20 more years. 20 years. And all that time, God is there waiting for them to return and notice he doesn't do anything for them to return he's just waiting for them to get to that point where they see how terrible life is without him and they return and after 20 years they do it was a long time 20 years in all that the ark remained at Kiriath Jearim and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord so after 20 years they decide to turn back to God Now, God wants to make sure that when they come back to him, they do it with all of their heart. That means getting rid of other false gods like the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of the nations around them. Verse 3. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel. Notice Samuel's been gone for the last three three chapters. Remember that? 
Now Samuel's back on the scene because God is returning to Israel. They're ready to hear from him. Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and Ashtoreths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Repentance means turning back to God, and when you turn back to God, it needs to be genuine, is what God is saying here. Saying that you turn back to God, but holding on to your disobedience, that is not repentance. Notice here, God does not say, I'm getting lonely without you, Israel. I'm missing you. Look, you can come back even if you have a couple of false gods. That's okay. You know, I'll be alongside them. No, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, let's sit down and negotiate. You know, you can worship me one day a week and the other six you can do what you want. He is God. They need to put him first. And they do, verse 5. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. After six chapters of disobeying God in 1 Samuel so far, the nation of Israel returned to him. And what happens for the rest of chapter 7 is quite spectacular, really. The rest of chapter 7 is a complete reversal of everything we've seen in 1 Samuel so far. God doesn't say, these people took 20 years to turn back to me. Let's just wait another year or two and see how genuine they are. He doesn't say, you know, let's give this a bit of a trial. No, just like the father in Jesus' parable who was out there waiting for his lost son to come home, God is here waiting for his people to return to him. And the moment his people turn back to him, he opens his arms wide and he welcomes them in. He forgives them. He blesses them. And that's what the rest of chapter 7 is about. It is verse after verse of God blessing his people as they turn to him. It begins in verse 5. Samuel gathers everyone at Mizpah, which is a new city in the book of 1 Samuel. And so far, everything has been happening at Shiloh. Shiloh was the centre of everything bad, remember. It's as if even just at the start here, calling them to a new city is a fresh start. Verse 5. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, They drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted and there confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. Now, that word leader, some of you have a little thing at the bottom of your Bibles that says Samuel was judge of Israel at Mizpah. If we had been reading our way through the Bible, this would be starting to ring some bells for us because both those phrases at the end of that sentence come from the book of Judges. Back in Judges, when Israel realised they'd done wrong, they would confess their sin to God. And then God would raise up a judge to rescue them. Now that's exactly what's starting to happen and what happens as we read on. Samuel is now acting like a judge from the book of Judges. So in verse 7, Samuel does rescue them from the hand of the Philistines. Just like the judges do, you know, Samson and Gideon and so on. Verse 7. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. 
The Philistines are back. The Israel, Israelites are scared again. This time, though, they don't reach for the ark like a lucky charm. They turn straight to God. Verse 8, they said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Notice whole, he's not sort of picking off bits for himself, like the start of 1 Samuel. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below Bethkar. The contrast between what is happening here in chapter 7 and what's happened so far in the book of 1 Samuel could not be bigger. It's almost as if we're reading a different book. In chapter 2, do you remember the priests were stopping the Israelites from offering their sacrifices to God and stealing parts of the sacrifice? Now Samuel is offering a whole burnt offering of a lamb on behalf of Israel. In chapter 3, the word of the Lord was rare. Now God is speaking through Samuel and his people are listening. In chapter 4, they turned to a lucky charm. They turned to the ark to rescue them, but now they're turning to the Lord for help. In humility acknowledging their sin. In chapter 4, it was the Israelites being slaughtered. Now it's the Philistines. And to top it all off, in the last few verses here of chapter 7, some of the Philistine cities that we heard about last week are restored to the nation of Israel. Last week we heard about Ekron and Gath because that's where the ark was sent and then sent again. They were Philistine cities, but now God gives them back to the Israelites. Verse 14. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to her. And Israel delivered the neighbouring territory from the power of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. They are Israel's other enemies. Put it all together and this chapter is a picture of Israel experiencing God's blessing because they've turned back to him. And it's good, isn't it? It's just like the book of Judges. When God's people return to him, he rescues them. He does not hesitate. And I think we're meant to notice this similarity between chapter 7 and the book of Judges because look at the last three verses, how um, the writer describes Samuel. He describes him as a judge three times. Verse 15, Samuel continued as judge over Israel all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he also judged Israel. And he built an altar there to the Lord. Now, chapter 7 looks pretty good, doesn't it? Israel have cried out to the Lord, and the Lord has raised up a judge to rescue them. But if you know anything about the book of Judges, you will know this is not the first time that we've seen this happen. In fact, this is a cycle that happened in the book of Judges, and you may even know what comes next in that cycle. 
In the book of Judges, Israel would disobey God. God would hand them over to their enemies. They would cry out to him and he would rescue them. What comes next in that cycle in the book of Judges? What comes after the rescue? Let me read to you from the start of the book of Judges, Judges 2.18. This is like an overview of the book of Judges, which comes before 1 Samuel. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers. You see the problem there? What came next in the cycle of judges is that the judge would die and the nation of Israel will forsake God again. So as good as 1 Samuel 7 sounds, and it is really good, there's now a big question in the back of our minds, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen when Samuel dies? Are Israel just back into this cycle that was judges all over again? Chapter 7 is good, but can it last? Make sure you're here on September 4, 2016, because in term 3, we're going to open up to 1 Samuel 8 and we're going to find out what happens to the nation of Israel. Now, I hope that makes you feel a bit uneasy. Don't read on. It's meant to be a cliffhanger. But for now, as we leave it at the end of chapter 7, there is a great lesson for us right here about God and his character. Because do you see how remarkable God's forgiveness and love is? See, God has been here before with his people. God has watched his people turn and ask him for help, and he's rescued them. And then when life gets good, he has watched them turn away and go back to worshipping false gods. And he has seen them do it again and again and again And again. And there's no guarantee that they're going to be any different this time. We don't know what's around the corner in chapter 8. And yet here God is, ready again to welcome them back. Here he is the moment they turn to him, showering his blessings upon them. He is a God who gives and gives and gives and gives. And he is a God who gave his son to die on a cross so that we can be forgiven. You and I, we do so many things wrong. We live our life without him. We ignore him. We deliberately reject him. We pile up sin upon sin and provoke him to anger. And yet he stands there with his arms wide open, inviting us to return ready to forgive. And he will forgive even an entire lifetime of rejecting him. We can be forgiven if we come to him. In the New Testament, in Romans 10, God promises this. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if you're here this morning and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, I want to address you this morning. I want to leave you with a challenge. 
Don't wait. Don't wait any longer to turn to God for forgiveness. Don't be like the nation of Israel who faffed around for 20 years before they returned to the Lord. Because when they returned, they experienced God's blessing, they experienced God's forgiveness, God rescued them. It was wonderful. And yet God is offering you even more. All you need to do is turn back to him. Put him first. And the sooner you return to him, the sooner you receive his forgiveness. The sooner you return to him wholeheartedly, the sooner you experience the blessings of knowing him. He is standing there, arms wide open. All you have to do is return. Trust in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Don't put it off any longer. Let's pray. Father God, when we look at the story of your people and the way they relate to you ever since the creation of the world, you have been a God who continues to forgive and to love. Even when your people rejected you. And Father, thank you that we stand this side of the cross, of the death of Jesus, where we see the most clearly your love for us. Thank you that you sent Jesus so that you can welcome us back and forgive us. Father, we pray that um, you would help us to be honest with you, especially if we haven't put our trust in Jesus yet. And Father, thank you that when we come to you, you do forgive. Amen.